Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Karasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, slowly killing one of my houseplants that was next to my desk. It did not survive the Chicago winter. <laughs> I like that you're an active agent in this. You're not just not keeping it alive, you're actively killing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's me and the winter combined. I should have right. repotted it when I got it. I know I should have, but hey, what's a man to do? negligence isn't even a crime in terms of like murder i don't think that's legally one that's on the books yeah but i still feel bad about it yeah (laughs) i don't think i've ever heard of a negligent homicide um (laughs) i'm cameron lalana this week looking uh i think the whitest i ever have i look more like a ghost now than during quarantine uh because i've got three screens of just white space and uh uh, not quite enough uh, camera or light behind my computer to try to bring some color back into my face. So, and so I got Matt pulled up nice and big because I like to see his nice sure. lit up face instead of looking at my uh, somewhat like like a white emerging from the underworld. It's sad though because you've you've kind of gotten rid of all the intrigue from your room because just right. just moments ago. Uh, live from Cameron's room, there was a cat running around. And when he went to take the cat out, he said, wait a minute, I need to go put this cat down. (laughs) 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 So, you know, you tell me what's going on there. (laughs) The cats in this house, they're they're immortal. Last, I think three years ago, we had a cat, this was when I was in college, fall out of a third story window. Well, he pushed open the the window when we weren't looking and jumped out of a third story window. And he came back fine. And he's still kicking today. So I... Don't believe any cat in this household can actually die. Right, but we, we're not certain it's the same cat. No, he did come back surpri- a lot larger than we remembered. Well, losing one of your nine lives can really change you. <laughs> Anyways, this is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are going to be starting our absolutely massive series on Tolstoy's War and Peace. This episode, we're going to be reading part one, of book one about the first 100 130 pages depending on your copy and this series is only possible because of the support of our generous listeners who chip in a little bit every month over at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy if it weren't for them we wouldn't have the resources to put together a series like this as a special thank you to all of them we're going to be hosting a monthly patreon only reading group to discuss all of those uh, spicy spicy passages we didn't get to cover in our episode so if that interests you, take a look at all we've got to offer on patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. As a special thank you to all of them, we're going to be hosting a monthly Patreon-only reading group to discuss all of those spicy, spicy passages. You can tell Matt wrote this part. We didn't get to cover in our episode. So if that interests you, take a look at all we've got to offer at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. I have a really bad habit of uh, not only writing like I talk, but writing like I think, which is absolute <laughs> chaos. And it, it doesn't, the intonation really, it makes no sense as you go along, unless you're reading it in the voice that I've got off there, which is no yeah. problem. I like how your inner monologue doesn't have a period. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. It's one giant run-on sentence. I thought my years of experience in radio could carry me through that, but my lungs were really mm-hmm. failing at the end there. But I mean, it was good, good writing. It's just in your, in your voice. <laughs> I'm pushing it. It's a high intensity workout for your lungs. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of exciting things that we're getting to do because of listener support, Cameron, it's our faces. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful as always. I'm trying not to look at my face, but. Yep. 
Gotta look at the camera. It's a good technique, I think. Uh, yeah, we're officially trying out video podcasts because uh, Anchor and Spotify keep yelling at me to do it, so I figured why not? I'll do it. And that's pretty cool, huh? Pretty fun. Feels like I'm um, working from home again. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah. It's one big extended Zoom call. I love it. <laughs> that's all right. I no longer... I used to have like roughly four hours of Zoom calls a day, so I think I've been hardened mm-hmm. by, by life and time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we get into talking about the actual subject of this podcast, War and Peace, Matt, I got to ask you, uh, because you've been roasted pretty badly. Um, you've mm-hmm. been held over the flames, uh, mm-hmm. charbroiled a little bit about yep. some of your drinking choices recently. So I got to ask you, what have you brought? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what have you brought to the table today? All right. So camera can can feast on uh, this boy, this bad boy, if it uh, focuses uh, I'm drinking a non-alcoholic brew made by Wellbeing. It's a victory wheat with a uh, hint of orange. Uh, you know, as I say with all non-alcoholic beer, eh, it tastes like beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually pretty good. It's one of the better ones that I've that I've had. You can only have so many Heineken Zero Zeros before you start to question your will to live. <laughs> I like you say that like someone's forcing you to drink the Heineken Zero Zeros. Yeah, well, big Heineken, of course. Big. <laughs> uh, one of our main corporate sponsors, uh, Big Heineken, mm-hmm. which of course is the one telling us to do all the things behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Legally distinct from the, you know, the Heineken beer. It's actually a large man named Heineken uh, <laughs> who holds a gun to my head and uh, forces me to drink Heineken Zero Zeros. <laughs> um. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll we'll bring Big Heineken around. Hopefully he'll accept this episode as a one-off. Maybe start yeah. broadening his horizons a little bit. He's nice, but just don't accept any drinks from him. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a trickster god from like some mythology or maybe even multiple. <laughs> <laughs> He's the trickster god of my own creating. <laughs> like in American Gods, how gods are created by belief. Matt believed in Heineken so much that he created Big Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. anyway, uh, I, I, I wish this was a sponsorship. Anyways, Cameron, I got to ask, what are, you, what are you drinking this fine evening? So as you may have been noticing, you sipping out of a mason jar full of a strange white liquid. This is I not, in fact, kumis, like mm. uh, Tolstoy would wish. Well, that would have been really good for our first episode of War and Peace. This I is was thinking egg- about it. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is eggnog, which I made a couple weeks ago. I was sitting in my fridge. Uh, I was trying out a recipe which is meant to age for, you know, uh, at least three weeks possibly more very smooth really like it it's mostly cream sugar eggs and alcohol and uh it's it's quite good enough enough alcohol to probably kill any salmonella so should you describe eggnog as really smooth yeah it is smooth it's uh it was when i first made it the rum was very present but the longer it sat the more it's become like what you would expect from a store in a very pleasant way and despite the fact that there is an incredible amount of rum in here, it does not taste okay. like it. So Okay. I see. Yeah. I see. All right. Well, I, I'm proud of you. This is now the second eggnog attempt, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The first so. one, not so hot. No, we didn't. We don't talk about that one. I don't remember. If <laughs> no, we, that's, we, a, that's a cursed episode somewhere in the vault, <laughs> I think, at this point. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Did we release that episode? Did we even bring it on? Uh, who knows? I we'll come back to that know. one day. Who knows? If you're a tipsy Tolstoy historian, let me know. I've forgotten. <laughs> Yes. Well, okay, let's go from talking about a sort of festivity, eggnog, to talking about other festivities, which is nonstop dinner parties uh, yes. in 
part Please. one of War and Peace. So Please. as you probably already seen our schedule online, this is going to take us uh, through about halfway through the year because there's so many parts. We're covering one part per episode. So this part we're covering part one of book one, which will yeah go like the, roughly the first hundred pages in your copy if you are reading along with us. And uh, similar to what we've done in previous long form series, uh, we are still sticking with mostly going through a recap of the uh, part itself and then adding in context as we go. Um, because as we've realized, people don't really want to lecture and it's easier to convey information through conversational forms. More fun for me too. More fun. <laughs> and that's what matters. More fun than been saying, hey, Matt, all right, here's 10 to 15 minutes. We need you to explain this entire book to us before we start. <laughs> I, I don't want that task. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of a conversation between two people, War and Peace, the big, the big thick one, it's got everything <laughs> war peace right what more could you want mostly so far over the family dinner table can i preface just one thing sure okay yeah go before for it. we get into it because this is something that grinds my absolute gears when people tell me this which is i like war and peace but only the peace parts which is the same thing to me as i like anna karenina but i don't like the leaven parts <laughs> get over it you suck it up and you read it. That's how you read <laughs> War and Peace. It's suffering. Enjoy. <laughs> it's also maybe the best book ever written, but it's also suffering. So, right. you know, make of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Those are very wise words. Yes. For anyone looking to get inspired. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't, th if you did not know whether or not you should pick up War and Peace, just know it's suffering and we think you it's should suffering. pick it up. Enjoy. Mm -hmm. No, my real pep talk, because I know there are some people that are giving this a try for their very first time, is not to get discouraged with it because of the fact that it is supposed to be kind of suffering, you know, not suffering per se, but a, a search more broadly, right? It is supposed to be challenging. You're going to get lost with the names. This is my second time reading it, and I still get lost with who is related to who. So, you know, stick with it. Listen to the podcast. Let us help you out. Make a lot of use of the, I don't know what they call it in your book, the persona, not persona non grata, uh, persona stramate or however you pronounce it. Uh, because, yeah, it is convincing that there are multiple Prince Andre Bolkonski <laughs> and they will be referred to as Prince Andre or the Prince or Andre interchangeably, regardless of who he means in the same paragraph. Mm -hmm. Yes. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's talk about speaking of princes and conversations. Let's start with uh, our, our a dear, dear friend of ours. Well, depends on your perspective. Uh, Prince Vasily <laughs> in, in, in Petersburg is attending uh, the Anna Pavlovna, who is the maid of honor to the empress at a slightly before her soiree at St. Petersburg. And they're there to kind of have a conversation. Um, uh, Vasily is going over an appointment that he's unhappy with uh, regarding his son and is trying to figure out a way to maneuver him into a different position, something a little bit higher up, maybe even a, you know an aide de camp to an important general who is, as, as we're getting ready to go, uh, the Russian army is getting to, ready to go fight Napoleon along with other European powers. Um, and so that kind of goes back and forth. They go over some of the gossip in the town, uh, which continues until the, the soiree itself. Uh, and then we start to see the dynamics of the various uh, peoples here. We finally meet, first of all, speaking of Prince Balkonsky, uh, Prince Andre Balkonsky enters the room and he enters in a way that just shows he does not care about this at all. He is over <laughs> it already. <laughs> he already knows everyone. He knows the conversation going on and he's profoundly bored to be here. And he's accompanied by his wife, uh, who is very pregnant. 
very pretty. And every time she's mentioned Tolstoy keeps bringing up her mustache. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to read into that. He just, he just keeps doing it. Oh, we're going to talk so much about it. Oh, and her lips. Oh. Okay. Oh, perfect. Oh, well, that, I'm, little, I'm that little squirrel-like <laughs> face. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, it's really, I don't know if this is the translation I'm reading, but every time someone's lips get to like, well, I think it's Prince Balkonsky's lips are described as sensuous and there's a lot to, there's a lot to say here. Yeah. Or just let it rest one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, as this is happening, more people are coming in. Uh, sorry, we're going to go a little long in the intro here because there's a lot of characters we're going to be talking about a lot later. We have the son yep. of uh, Count uh, Bezukhov, uh, who's known primarily as Pierre, who comes in. As we learn about Pierre, he is was mostly educated abroad. He has just come back to Russia fairly, relatively recently. His father lives in Moscow, and he's been dispatched to St. Petersburg to find a job. He has not done very well at that so far. Not even a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see why? Because he's walking around, and he seems he's intelligent. He, he wants to get involved in every conversation. He's worried that maybe something is really interesting going on that he's going to miss. But he gets involved, and there's a certain way you have a conversation. Because these aren't real conversations, so to speak. This is a sort of a formal dance before the actual dance where you say a few things, say a few platitudes, and then you know the right time to move on. You aren't actually having a conversation unless you're kind of agreeing with each other, then you can go a little longer. You are certainly not there to actually argue a point. Now, this becomes trouble because, oh boy, does Pierre actually want to argue some points? So he goes to some relatively important people in Petersburg society and he brings them into some arguments. And so Anna Pavlovna is following Pierre around, trying to make sure he doesn't really get anyone too, uh, too angry, although she's not doing very well because Pierre is just going for it. Uh, Andre <laughs> tags along as well. And he's like, Andre is, is a friend of Pierre's, we should know. And he's not defending Pierre exactly, but he'll kind of get Pierre out of some sticky conversational traps, especially as they start talking about uh, philosophy and Russia's place in the world. And, and you know, that continues. Um, uh, Prince Vasily, he has to go eventually, He's accompanied by his daughter, Helene, uh, to go attend some other business he has. Or is it H Helena? Uh, Helen or uh, Elaine. It's, I think it's said a couple different ways. Okay. A lot of nicknames. And it, but it's not important. What's mostly important is that everybody's looking at her chest. And so is Tolstoy, I think, as a narrator. Yeah. Yeah, in classic yeah. Tolstoy fashion, uh, almost every single woman in this book is very beautiful unless they're old, or in one particular case, who he does he does make sure to know that you, she is not attractive, and he, he goes on, but we'll get there. Um, so he has to unfortunately leave to go to another soiree or another event that night, and on his way out, he's accosted by a, a former society woman who has now kind of fallen on hard times, uh, Princess Drubetskoy, uh, who's also known as, we refer to often as Anna Mikhailovna, and... Um, she says, hey, look, the position you have now, you got that because of my father. Can you please remember that and help my son find a position in the guards? Our family's fallen on hard times. I'm currently pursuing a lawsuit. I have no money. And he has no future. And at first, uh, Prince Vasily is just like, come on, go away, please. I, I have some poor business to attend to. But, you know, as she keeps going on, perhaps realizing that she's not going to go away, perhaps feeling that he really does owe her father a debt of honor for what he did for, for Prince Vasily. He says, okay, look, yes, I will go. I'll go talk to, to my contacts and we'll see, you know, get word to the emperor and see if we can find a position for your son in the guards. And she says, oh, wonderful. Well, if you find a position in the guards, because you actually <laughs> help him become an aide-de-camp to, you know, one of the Russian generals. And he says, look, no, that position has already been chosen. I cannot, I'm not going to be able to override that, especially not for an unknown like your son. And she kind of keeps going along with it. And he eventually has to leave as she's literally like trailing along beside him saying, no, you can really be, make him, you know, an aide. 
uh, and she basically follows him all the way until he leaves. And then she goes back to, as it's described, um, talk with people until there's an appropriate time for her to go because she's already accomplished her mission. Queen. <laughs> right. So from there, we follow um, uh, Pierre as he goes to Prince Andre's uh, house. And as we find out from or his residence, not a, it would be inaccurate to say where he lives as a house, um, to his residence. And then they have a conversation about life. Uh, while they're there, um, Andre's wife, uh, Lisa, she's getting on Andre because Andre has recently joined the military and he's fairly soon going to deploy. And she is not happy about that. Well, Andre's not particularly nice about it either. <laughs> no, no, no. She's, yeah, well, I would say, yeah, she's like really not happy about it. Very understandably, Andre is, is just totally dead to her concern in that regard. She's also pregnant, so that's, yes, you know. Due pretty soon, in fact. Yeah, and Andre's response is more or less, uh, women. <laughs> so yeah, he basically sends her out of the room and he sits down with Pierre and he says, look, Pierre, you're single. Stay that way. Don't ever get married if you want to be happy, essentially. And he's like, my bum, I've already cast my die. <laughs> life here, you know, with a wife, all I do is attend these soirees and balls and social life. And I'm so very bored. Um, and and they, as they're kind of having that conversation, Pierre doesn't really understand because to him, uh, Andre has everything that he wants to be. He's married. He's got a position in society. He's got a job, uh, <laughs> uh, even a fairly important job at that in the military. And he's going off to seek glory, although Pierre himself is a bit of a sympathizer for Napoleon, who is the Russian military is going to oppose. And so they have that conversation. Andre sends him away and says, hey, look, whatever you do, don't go to, to uh, Prince Karagin's tonight. Uh, Prince, you know, it's just going to be trouble. Please don't play, go, go play cards there. And Pierre walks away and says, you know, um, yeah, I'm going to listen to my friend Andre. Then he says, well, really, I mean, I gave my word to Karagin that I would be there to play cards. And then I also get my word to Andre so that I wouldn't. So, I mean, I'm going to break someone's word. So I may as well just have fun while I'm doing it. I'm going to break my word to someone. And he goes to Karagin to play cards. Uh, and I don't know how important this character is going to be. But while he's there, a man named, uh, I think it's a lieutenant or a captain, Dalchov, uh, challenges an Englishman says, I bet you can't, I bet I can drink an entire bottle of rum while sitting on this windowsill with my legs outside the windowsill without touching either the sides or ever putting taking the bottle from my lips, which just, that's like the worst bet in the world, first of all. And everyone acknowledges that they're all pretty certain he's going to die. But he does it, and he wins um, 50 Imperial. And Pierre tries to do the same before they say, no, 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 that's too dangerous. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's go take this bear we have chained up and go play with in the park, which, of course, is fine. <laughs> well, just a, couple of, just a couple of guys being dudes. Just a couple of guys being dudes with a bear. <laughs> <laughs> So from there, we, we go from, as they leave, to jumping forward to the Rostov, or the Count and Countess Rostov's uh, residence in Moscow. As we are find out you know, in, the, in some coming pages, this is some time forward, a couple weeks, not super long, it's, but also not made clear how long. And uh, it's the name day for the Countess, as well as their youngest, I believe youngest daughter, Natasha. Both of them are named Natasha. Uh, name day refers to the celebration for like the saint that you're named after. So for Natasha's, this is their name day. And uh, they're getting ready for a celebration. And the Count and the Countess are having a conversation. Our favorite Princess Turetskoy comes by to tell the Countess about what a horrible state she's in uh, before departing to go uh, and treat herself to um, Count Bezukhov to try to leverage some of their history together. Yeah, she's working there from like every angle. It's honestly kind of impressive. Yeah, I know. She's always on that grind. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so from there, we have mm, some of the... I won't say I have the honor. I mean, these are important characters. However, a little bit awkward. Uh, we A few characters come in. Uh, first of all, we have, uh, as, <laughs> as we learn, <laughs> we have uh, Boris, who is um, Anna Mikhailovna's da- or daughter, son, who, of course, is now uh, now in the guards. Uh, we have Nikolai, who is uh, Count's uh, son, formerly a student, now joining the military. Not because his friend Boris is joining the military, just because he wants to totally on his own. Seriously, guys. I just need to make that clear. It's it's because <laughs> I love my country and duty, but definitely not because of Boris. Yeah, definitely not because my, my best friend is going. <laughs> Along with them, we have they have Natasha, who is uh, the youngest daughter, who is also sharing a name day. Sonia, who is their cousin, as well as uh, Petya, their, their younger, or Petyusha, the youngest son, and who is always mentioned as being somewhat tubby. Um, they have a conversation, uh, and, and things continue. They go off and have their own fun. Uh, the important thing to note here is that Sonia and Nikolai are in love, they are also cousins, and as the as they leave the actually sorry this I believe I I think Anna Mikhailovna is still there at this time. So as she watches them go, she says to the Countess, "Cousinhood is a dangerous neighborhood." It's just an Arrested <laughs> Development episode writing itself. It's great, which obviously we all know Arrested Development came first, and then mm-hmm. Tolstoy's War and Peace was written after. Right. That. He saw the whole story of of um, George Michael and maybe. George Michael yeah. and Mabian said, well, mm-hmm. I can do, I can work with this. I can make this better. <laughs> if we had some more legal uh, protections, I would, I would have put in Sweet Home Alabama, right? As we started describing that. Right, 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 right. So the whole Nikolai Sonia thing isn't great. However, I will say in all honesty, it is better than what's going on with the whole Nikolai, not Nikolai, excuse me, Boris, Natasha thing, who, as they go outside, Natasha professes her love to Boris and says, oh, won't you get married to me? And he's kind of bashful and says, yeah, maybe in a couple of years. Uh, I don't <laughs> know how old Boris is. I could not find that. I think he's at least like 17 or 18, maybe 16, maybe as young as that. It's, I mean, they really let you into the military whenever at this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, Natasha is 13. And so she's like, really like, okay, well, when I turn 17, then, you know, we can finally get married. And he's like, yes, of course. Um, so there's that. There's a lot. I would, you know, one person could say, you know, it was 200 years ago. However, also worth noting that even Tolstoy got married to a woman that everyone was like, she's a little young for you, my guy. <laughs> yeah, everybody thought that he was going to propose to her older sister. And even the family was surprised when he was actually interested in the, you know, the younger one, the way, way younger one. Oops, he did it again. Uh, so there's that. Sorry, slight correction. What I said earlier, uh, Anna Mikhailovna actually does not leave early. She leaves with Boris as they go to go uh, Prince Bezukhov's to try to entreat him for some money, about 500 rubles. And uh, we leave the Rostovs for now. Upon arriving at the uh, the Counts, it's really obvious that uh, Boris does not like what his mom is doing. She keeps saying, look, just play your part. It'll be fine. We'll get the money. And Boris is just kind of stone-facedly looking forward like he doesn't really like this. He doesn't appreciate it. But he, he's more or less going along with it. As they get inside, uh, uh, Princess Rubetskoy once again sees Prince Vasily and says, oh, Prince Vasily, perfect, you can help me out here. And it's noted that Vasily kind of has realized, oh, I can't get rid of this woman. And he just kind of gives in and goes to see if he can help her out or figure something out for her, for her various uh, asks. Uh, while also trying to kind of keep her away from um, the Count. Because the Count is, it should be noted, very sick at this point uh he's very close to death and so he's really like you can't see the count maybe we can talk 
I can I can see what I can do to help you. You can't see the count. And she's like, no, 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 we'll work something out. And says, oh, Boris, you see the, the Rostovs wanted um, Pierre to come to dinner tonight. Why don't you go see if you can go eat him? I'll talk to Prince Vasily about this. And Prince Vasily like slumps into an armchair, um, realizing that he's truly not going to get rid of um, uh, Anna Mikhailovna. Boris goes to go find Pierre. Pierre is in his room, imagining that he is having a, an argument with Napoleon. Uh, man, Pierre, I, very relatable. Military boys, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Military boys, but it, the, the grand part of the battle is just when he's found Napoleon. Instead of fighting, they just have a one-on-one uh, argument. <laughs> and Boris barges in and introduces himself and basically lays out, Hey, look, I know you kind of understand what my mom is doing here. I don't want any part of that. Just to be clear, I don't want your money or anything. Uh, that's just total honesty. I don't want to be part of this. I'm uncomfortable with it. Also, the Rostovs would like to see you for dinner tonight. And Pierre is uh, awkward. He doesn't know how to react to this. Again, they're, um, this is sort of a on Boris's part, sort of like a break from tradition, or sort of like how you would want to talk. I would, but I would say it's not that big of a break. It's like kind of a break that would be appreciated. And Boris, uh, sorry, Pierre, uh, who does not know how to receive this, just feels awkward and sends him away, but is like, oh, I kind of like him. He's an honest, smart young man. I don't think Pierre knows what's happening at all no. throughout most of the book. So, <laughs> you know, from yeah, to your point from here, we follow Pierre through a bit of his day as he goes to the various princesses who live in the house and they'll uh, make fun of him. There's one of them who like, can't stop laughing at him every time she sees him. And he's just wandering <laughs> around, not certain what he's doing at any given time. That's <laughs> uh, your point. From there, we go back to the Rostovs. Um, the countess has managed to get some money for Anna Mikhailovna because she feels so bad for her friend. And from there, we, we contribute, we go back to another dinner party uh, from <laughs> a lot of dinner parties. From here, we have conversations between their many friends, an argument about politics from a man named Shinshin and uh, Lieutenant Berg, who a lot going on there. I think the most important thing to note is that throughout this party, Nikolai mostly is talking to a young woman named Julie. Julie is, uh, I forget her relations and we'll talk more about her later. But Sonia, not happy about this. She, as soon as the dinner's over, she runs out of the room. Natasha has to go calm her down before to bring her back to the after dinner party. Sonia is like, my life is so difficult. I love him, but you know we're cousins, so we'd have to get in order in this area. You'd have to have in order to marry your cousin, you'd have to get the approval of the metropolitan, uh, you know, like the head of the church. And Natasha, who's very helpful, says, "Look, Shinshin, he married his first, or his a relation of his married his first cousin. That got approved." You and Nikolai, but only second cousin, so it's basically a shoe-in. Not, not that bad. That's that's fine. <laughs> it seems not only like extraordinarily difficult to get in touch with the Metropolitan at this time, but also, wow, what an uncomfortable conversation to have to broach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hi, hello. I know you don't know me. I don't know you. Um, I'd like to marry my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that's a tough one. That's a difficult one. Yeah. Uh, the rich and famous lived lives very different from us in, in this era. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> the average person's trying to make a buck and they're like, how am I going to find the courage to tell the Metropolitan I want to pork my cousin? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Sweet home Alabama, indeed. <laughs> so speaking, uh, going back a little bit before all this is happening, well, while Sonia's getting upset about it, Pierre attends the party characteristically doesn't know what to do. He's just doesn't even know who to talk to. And uh, another woman, uh, Maria, uh, Maria Dmitrievna, who is like 
known and known as the as a dragon because of her frankness, kind of like Pierre in a way, uh, except everybody respects her for it instead of looking down on him for it. <laughs> kind of like Pierre in a way, but actually not at all like Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> but in the opposite way. Uh, she comes in and basically shames him for the incident with the bear. Which, by the way, I guess someone almost died trying to get the bear out of it when they let him into a river at some point. It was a whole event. No, they tied a policeman to the back That's of That's right. <laughs> and then the bear went swimming. That's it. The policeman still tied to him. Yeah. So he got exiled to Moscow where all the naughty, naughty boys go. <laughs> yeah. So she comes in, shames him for that. They proceed to the dinner. Uh, Pierre, once again, is like not doing super well conversationally. He's very awkward. The men are discussing war. Uh, the women be like, well, why do we need to have these conversations, these wars, whatever? War, what is it good for? War, what is it good for indeed? Um, we'll talk more about the particulars potentially later, but that's when they break to go play cards and play music and all that. That's when Sonya runs out. Uh, we return. They all get to have some fun. Uh, they do some dancing. All is well. So while the name day celebration is happening, uh, Prince, uh, Prince, excuse me, uh, Count Bezukhov, who is Pierre's father. Uh, oh, by the way, Prince Pierre. Should have mentioned this. So there's so many characters in so many relations. Prince, P or not Pierre, just Pierre. Pierre is Count uh, Bezukhov's illegitimate son. And so he was sent abroad for his entire uh, youth and education to learn there, which is part of why he's so awkward. So uh, he begins to go into basically a spiral. They know he's going to die soon. So everyone, uh, Prince Vasily, all the princesses into the house, they get ready to for, for his passing, getting a priest to perform last rites and all that. And they send for Pierre to come say goodbye to his, his father. Uh, accompanying Pierre as he shows up as Anna Mikhailovna. As, we're, as they're coming in, Vasily pulls a, uh, aside the eldest princess and sits her down and says, look, you know I love you like you're one of my own children. And you know that Count Bezukhov wrote all of his, in his will, that everything he has is going to Pierre. And we can't let that stand. And after some argument, he gets her to agree over her hatred of Anna Mikhailovna that they need to rewrite his will so Pierre doesn't get everything. Anna Mikhailovna is trying to ingratiate herself to Pierre, so she brings him inside. He's tripping over himself. He's in a part of the house he didn't even know existed. He's been living here for months. <laughs> um, and everyone's giving him deference, which is totally weird to him because normally no one does that. And they, they bring him up. And then they have, he arrives just in time for sort of a last rites. Everyone's treating him weirdly. They go through the whole process of, of that. And as they're watching it, uh, Pierre notices that um, Prince Vasily and the eldest princess go off to his, his private chambers by themselves. And he's like, well, that must be part of the ritual. I mean, he assumes <laughs> everything going on is meant to be happening. Um, Not realizing that he's just about to be cut out of the will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so he, they bring him back. Pierre has a moment of quiet with him, but it really is not much of a conversation at all. And then he goes out and Prince Vasily starts having a conversation with them. At this time, uh, Princess, uh, the princess and uh, Anna Mikhailovna get in a physical altercation. Anna Mikhailovna realizing what's happening with the documents that the princess has. Um, and they like literally rip, trying to rip it out of her hands when the youngest princess runs in and says, hey, the count's dying. And you know, he passes um, in, the, in the next few pages. When Anna Mikhailovna tells the story later on, she says, oh, yeah, the Count and his son, Pierre, great relationship at the end. They had a great conversation at the end, which, of course, we know did not happen. They just kind of stared at each other, and then he, and then the Count went to sleep. Basically, the, the, the plan of the eldest princess and uh, Prince Vasily did not go through, and Pierre becomes Count Bezukhov. From here, we go again to another family, to the Balkonskis, to Prince Balkonsky. Don't get Prince Balkonsky confused with Prince Balkonsky because they're not the same person. Prince Balkonsky <laughs> is Prince Balkonsky's Fool. father. <laughs> Please don't call me Prince Balkonsky. Prince Balkonsky was my father. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, so there there is the elder Prince Balkonsky, and we have been so, so far been following the the younger Andre Balkonsky. He's the one who's married to Lisa. He lives out in a country estate. He's mostly been retired, somewhat forcibly. You know, he spends all of his time just kind of teaching his daughter, really just kind of like beating her down with, with knowledge. Um, and from there, uh, Prince, the the younger Prince Andre uh, Balkonsky comes with his wife, Lisa. She and Maria, Prince Balkonsky's daughter, get along very well. It's really the only thing holding Lisa together because she's so upset now because as uh, Andre reveals to Maria, Lisa's had bad premonitions about you know the 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 baby's birth. They have a dinner, many more dinners um, where they, they have a lot of conversation about what everyone's going to do, uh, as well as you know um, Andre's service in uh, Eastern or in in Europe, which the elder uh, um, Balkansky does not seem to get at all, and he makes fun of him, and he seems to have the opinion that all these new young people are just young upstarts, and you know they're not really anything compared to the old Zuvorovs, you know this Napoleon. Pah, and he says the only reason Napoleon is so big as he is is because he fought the Germans first, and everyone since the beginning of time has beaten the Germans. The only time they ever win is when they're fighting themselves. I like when we're at like that point in history. <laughs> it's good. It's I good. mean, it didn't really change after that. The Germany lost every world war that followed. It's true. True. They're on a streak. Don't tell me if you know more about German military history. That's not against. That's not Prussian. First of all, uh, they don't, the Russians don't count. Um, <laughs> Well, or you can, I don't know, send us an email if you have to, if you take issue with our or Tolstoy's characterization of German military history. Uh, <laughs> it's apparent that he does not really respect that, but you know, whatever. Prince Andre prepares to depart. Maria gets a letter from Julie, who is sort of the person who's kind of pining after Nikolai, and they have a conversation. Uh, we find out that Maria is very religious, and they have, they talk about what went on in, in Moscow. And also, we have the beginning of a friends to lovers storyline. I'm convinced. I don't think you can convince me otherwise. Julie and Maria. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Julie. It's Oh, yeah. Also, like I said earlier, Maria uh, Tolstoy, normally every single young woman is very beautiful. Tolstoy goes out of his way to tell you how ugly Maria is. He is except paragraph for her eyes. paragraph, except for her eyes, sometimes. which Julie. Yes. After Julie, <laughs> sometimes after Julie compliments her eyes in a letter. Uh, Tolstoy says, but she had very beautiful eyes. And Julie goes on about that. So they have their conversation. She goes Maria's, on. May I? Yes, please, please, please. Why cannot I now, as three months ago, draw fresh moral strength from that calm, gentle, penetrating look of yours, a look I love so much and seem to see before me as I write? Who says that to a friend? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> yeah, so Andre begins, prepares to leave. Lisa is not happy about it. Andre goes to her father and says, hey, look, get a midwife when she's giving birth. She's had bad premonitions. If I happen to die, raise the son. If it's a son, raise him here. Does not mention when she should do if it's a daughter. Um, <laughs> At that point, doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. Take the wife, take the daughter, get rid of him. Doesn't matter. <laughs> and you start to see where some of these tendencies came from when the elder Prince Balkonsky says, look, I know you're unhappy. That's just how it is. That's just how marriage is. You just suck it up and go through it. And then he tells him, look, if you die, I will be sad. But if you don't act like my son, I will be far more ashamed. Uh, <laughs> and with that, those very encouraging words from a very supportive father, um, mm -hmm. Prince Andre leaves for the theater of war as Lisa faints. And then Andre says, well, what am I going to do? Wait until she wakes up and leaves while she's unconscious. <laughs> and while she's unconscious, the elder Prince Balkonsky looks at her with like, like, like he's disgusted and leaves the room. And that's where we end part one. <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs>
It's really a masterclass in um, writing people that you should hate. However, are however you still uh, narratorially favor them. Sure. Yeah. I go back often to what you said about the way Tolstoy writes Anna and um, Steve's relationship and Anna Karenina, which is that they really do feel like siblings that were not just told that. Yes, absolutely. I, I keep coming back to that because in Tolstoy's, yeah, all the time in Tolstoy's writing, I see, you see the weight of fami- of familyhood, I guess I would say, on characters. Yeah, yeah. I th- I mean, I think so. I think the most interesting one is Pierre because he's an illegitimate son there's something different about him and he's clearly much different than the rest of his, you know, quote unquote family. Right. No, just as far as the other families go, it's more or less the same. Yeah. With Pierre. And it's, I think his distance from them is emphasized by the fact. So a lot of, uh, depending on the translation you're reading, a lot of they, most of them, as is the lingua franca of the uh, Russian aristocracy, the elite of this time is French. So for most of this book, they're, they're speaking in French which is reflected in the text because a lot of the text is written in French with footnotes as Tolstoy wasn't writing in French and just being like, good luck figuring this one out if you don't speak French. He did provide footnotes, um, which I think at least on one occasion, the copy I was really noted that his own footnotes were mistranslated and it's hard to tell if that was intentional or just an accident. Um, I'm actually a little surprised that he provided footnotes. I don't think I knew that. I thought he would have just left it in French because everybody spoke French. I uh, maybe well I'll fact check that that was in the that was in the introduction to the copy I have but I'll I'll double check just to be I sure would, I would believe you I just you know yeah that's fair uh, but Pierre it's not as much of a, a dunk to your audience as it would be now yeah <laughs> like this is fair uh, but Pierre I don't believe he doesn't appear to have a great grasp on French mm-hmm. um, it's unclear how much he does or doesn't speak I don't think I ever see him in a, a lot me Anna Mikhailovna when she's taken through his father's house. Oftentimes she's speaking to him in French and it's, he's just like staring at her lady, like he doesn't understand. It's hard to tell if that's just because he's shocked by what's going on or like he truly just doesn't really understand the conversation. It's just kind of an oaf, I think. Yeah. Um, or at the very least he doesn't, there are specific words. He says he doesn't know how to translate or doesn't understand. So he, mm-hmm. he doesn't have the same natural grasp on French that the rest of them do. But anyway, so the, that, that's part one. You got a couple things you want to talk about. Is there anywhere you want to start? Uh, no, but I'll go for it because I don't know where to start because that's kind of the point of part one, I think. So maybe it would be best to start at the very beginning. It's different than Anna Karenina, I would say. And that it kind of drops you into the middle of a dinner party where you don't know anybody and you don't know what they're talking about. And it's confusing and I could see why people that kind of start it would maybe just put the book down because you don't know what the heck they're talking about. And I, I think that's kind of the style of the narration for a lot of the book, which is you just kind of dropped into the middle of something and you kind of figure it out more as you go. And you're supposed to kind of put those pieces together slowly uh, but it's supposed to be difficult. You're not supposed to have a complete grasp on everybody that you're reading about. It's, again, it's supposed to come kind of piece by piece. And I think the best way that you can start to see these characters' relationships is when they're interacting with each other, which is why a dinner party is great because you get so much information about so many different people all at once. Uh, who likes who? Who hates being there? Uh, who's an idiot? You get all these great things from the narrator who's uh, so happily obliging you as the reader and letting <laughs> you know all of these things. Yeah, and it also it reveals not just through the narrator himself, but also how they act at these dinner parties 
how people talk to them, uh, the gossip that you hear a lot of after the dinner party, you hear people gossiping. For example, the count, depending on who you talk to, he's a loaf, he's a gambler, he's not a very good man. But, you know, in other parts, he seems very generous. He like whenever his wife, his wife is like, hey, I need 500 rubles to get my friend. He's like, here, 700 rubles. Yeah, whatever you want. Um, you know, during the dinner party, he asked for dancing. He loves dancing. He's like everyone, the people just step back and let him dance because he's just so good at dancing that even, you know, uh, Maria Dmitrievna, who is otherwise kind of everyone's terror, he asked her to dance and she doesn't dance super well, but it's noted that she like she dances with her face and everyone's like just shocked at how well these two somewhat older people you know, someone out of shape are able to him dance physically and her dance with her face. And like everyone applauds and is just genuinely happy at that moment. So seeing these different, you know, many different faces they have or many different aspects, you know, it, it, it it's to your point about the way it's conveyed. It's difficult and it's hard and it's like tracking uh, a million different people and their all their different features and the way they might be portrayed in different environments. But also that's kind of probably what it would like to actually exist in this environment existing between what you see and what you gossip about. Yeah. I think for me, it's not a story that draws you into the action as such, because there's not really a lot of action. It's just a bunch of people sitting, talking, um, dancing, drinking and whatnot. It's, it's a story. It draws you into almost the description of how it's happening. And that to me, this is like, it's, it's an absolute masterclass in writing. I mean, it's just got some of the best descriptions that I've ever seen, uh, written particularly i would encourage anybody reading along to look at how people are described when they're talking and look at how people are described when they're moving speaking and moving are two very big things for tolstoy and it's going to give you a lot of insight into um what type of people uh they are and it's something that he spends a lot of time focusing on in his narration Mm -hmm. especially in part one right so do we want to talk about women let's talk about women (laughs) (laughs) that's about uh thankfully here on tipsy tolstoy hosted by two men we're about to address talk about women which is we're about to address that burning question (laughs) (laughs) i think that's what everyone was asking for they were crying out and said hey we need more men talking about this yeah i mean they want men to talk about uh the women question as it's uh so often put unfortunately so um but if you want to look at how people are described and how Tolstoy kind of does it, uh, it's you get some really vivid examples with uh, some of the ladies in, in the novel. Um, before I get to description, I want to share my favorite burn of part one. It, it comes between Vera and her mom, Natasha. And Natasha is the Countess Rostov. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, the quote goes, Vera, she said to her elder daughter, who was clearly not her favorite. How is it you haven't the least understanding? Don't you see that you are not wanted here? Go along to the girls or... And then she she trails off because she doesn't even care enough to finish the thoughts. (laughs) And I, I just love how, yes, a lot of the descriptions can be kind of drawn out and subtle, uh, but this one is not. Vera is just, she's just so awkward and just, uh, she doesn't enhance any of the conversations that she's in. She only makes it worse uh, in, for no real discernible reason. Right. And it should also be noted, I believe after that, it's noted that she gets up and goes without any apparent sign of having taken offense at what her mother had just said to her. So, Which, you know, really, that's 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 not great. 
That's an emotionally broken human. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes and just sees Nikolai and Boris and Natasha and Petya and Sonia all having fun and just starts snapping at them <laughs> until they bully her and, and they just bully her back. They're, they're so tired of her at this point that they yep. don't even take it to heart. They bully her back and then they literally run away. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah. it's great. So, um, a few things on women. Sure. One, and this was pointed out to me by somebody that I was taking a seminar with on War and Peace a couple of years ago. Very frequently described with animal characteristics, mm-hmm. described as like uh, squirrels or cats in this case. There are just some really uncomfortable feline related imagery uh, in this part, and I didn't like it. I am including a series of quotes and notes as I call them for our patrons. And I've got all of these ones. And this the, the heading for this one is Tolstoy makes me uncomfortable describing women. And <laughs> the quote is talking about Sonia, her fluidity of movement, the softness and flexibility of her small limbs and a certain coyness and reticence of manner made one think of a pretty half grown kitten that gave promise of becoming a beautiful little cat. <laughs> um, there, there's just a lot describing uh you know her physical characteristics and i I didn't i didn't appreciate it is all i'll say no and that also isn't a one-off when she's crying over nikolai when he's talking to julie at a later dinner party and she's natasha's hopping up for a bench that the cat metaphor does continue yeah no he drags it out through basically all of part one which is what i dislike (laughs) the most i think upon rereading it was really something that went over my head when i was reading it for i think i was just reading it so fast uh, my first read through because I was reading it for class, and, and now with a little more attention, I was like, "Oh, yeah, this is weird." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, hard to believe there'd be a couple other weird things about the um, "I want to marry my cousin" plotline. <laughs> yeah, the Sweet Home Alabama plotline. That's honestly the more we go into it, the fact that he's her cousin is one of the lesser weird things about that whole plotline. As we get into more of the finer, the nitty gritty, it's all right. Look. I'm not here to say that you can marry your cousin, but I'm just saying at least he's her second cousin. And like in mm-hmm. proximity to Nikolai and sorry, excuse me, in proximity to Boris and Natasha, not even the worst thing happening in that group. Well, and as is pointed out in the critically acclaimed Arrested Development, you know, the French have a different moral understanding than us. So who are we to judge, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As Michael Sarah once famously said. Thank you. The, to the great philosopher Michael Sarah. To the great philosopher Michael Sarah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Napoleon, the place he just does? He's not a character, but he—I think Napoleon is a character in a way. In that he's less well, let me not a character so much as a Rorschach test. Actually, uh, he will be a character, but at the moment he's not. But yeah, so the the book War and Peace was written, or you know, was published in 1869. Nice, and <laughs> it, it, <laughs> so it's the earliest of Tolstoy's three novels and this is important because it's basically you get pre-spiritual crisis Tolstoy not totally but for the most part comparatively you get him before he goes through his major crisis and then writes like resurrection and a bunch of other stuff that gets him excommunicated from the orthodox church oops and so you get an, an interesting look into family life uh, into the life of individuals, Napoleon being one of these individuals. And so 
this is written in the 1860s, which is under the reign of Alexander II, who was most notable, as you may know, for freeing the serfs in 1861. This is a relatively free-ish, reform-oriented kind of time in Russia. It's hopeful, I would say, perhaps. Um, now, this is connected to Napoleon and this War of 1812, which is going to be fought uh, later in the book. Hopefully that's not a spoiler for you. I don't know what you thought this book was about if uh, you didn't know that much, uh, but it is. Uh, I digress. <laughs> These are both times where there's this sort of, you know, not yet in Russia is there this feeling. However, after going to France and fighting Napoleon, uh, a lot of the Russian soldiers start to come back with ideas, which is not great for the government. Um, <laughs> but this is ultimately, it's the catalyst for the Decemberist revolt in 1825. So just like, you know, a little over 10 years after the war, um, it's it's sort of um, a really interesting turning point for Russia historically. And so you have these two sort of eras that are connected by the sense of hope, maybe the sense of freedom, um, you know, in the Russian context, which is, <laughs> albeit a little minimal. Um, but the question for Tolstoy has to do, I think, with how that sort of develops. How do ideas develop? And most importantly, how does history develop? And I promise that he's not going to leave you with like some vague answer. He's going to give you his thesis probably one million times more than you want over the course of this book. He's going to, he's going to, uh, uh, carve out his thesis on a hammer and just beat you over the head with it by the end of this book. I absolutely promise. But I'll give you a little taste now if you're dying to know. Tolstoy's real thing with history is that, you know, there's really no big ideas. There's no great men. What is really important in history are the extremely small individual choices that everybody makes. And those collectively create some sort of history. And this is not only important for Napoleon, but it's also important for just, you know, characters uh, that are living everyday lives. Because what they do themselves, just on the most minute things, that is also important. And so that's why you get a lot of these details where you're like, I don't care. Like, you know, I don't care what the newlyweds uh, crystal and silverware look like. And, you know, why is that important? But it... You know, not every detail is going to lead into some major historical event, but you'll see in war, as in with peace, there are these sort of conglomeration of choices that will sort of push things uh, a certain way. And I think that's kind of what he's exploring. Um, I already forgot the question, but I hope that that was something to think about. <laughs> No, I think it is. Do you mind if I actually, I think I have an example of what you're talking about in part one itself. Please. Let me know if this isn't, you don't actually think this is an example of that. But if we okay. take the, so Prince Vasily, when Count Bezukhov is dying, and he and the elder princess undertake their plan to try and, you know, take his will and change it. You know, of course, it's it ends because Mikhailovna and uh, the elder princess are struggling over it. So they never, but he dies while they're doing that. So he never actually has a chance. Later on, Anna Mikhailovna, when she tells her friends about the event, obviously, for one, she tells everyone, oh, Count, now Pierre is no longer Pierre, he's Count Bezukhov, now that he is the Count and he is the rightful heir, and um, as being, uh, now being a rightful heir, as being, a, because in his, his will, he asks, the actual, the original Count Bezukhov asked to adopt Pierre, uh, he can now legally leave him all his stuff, 
uh, she tells everyone, oh, it's a very beautiful moment, but also look at this, look at this villainous thing Prince Vasily and the Elder Princess did. And as, an, as a, like a side note later on, we're kind of coming to the end, I believe it's in Julie's letter, she notes that Vasily, Prince Vasily is now in kind of a, like, he's not well reputed in Moscow because everyone has heard what he did. Now, of course, he, now he did do it, but he actually wasn't a very active participant in the end. But, sure. and this is a sure. bit more of a vivid example, but just him being participated, participating in this at all has now led to sort of, at least at this point, a, a social fall for him. So we're, now, now, now that this is like a particularly interesting itself example, but your point of history itself, the way society's functioning is down to individual choices, not just him choosing to do that, but Anna Mikhailovna conveying that in a rather salacious way is now building the society going forward. Yeah, and another interesting point is the fact that Pierre still stands to benefit the most from what has happened. And you'll see this, it's kind of complicated with the way that Pierre sort of develops and we'll continue to get into it, but he's really not, uh, he's active in his search. He plays this role, I think, of the seeker, which is, or the searcher, which is a really big part of all of what Tolstoy is writing. It's the same as in Anna Karenina. You have a couple characters that play this role in War and Peace to some degree, and these are the ones that the narrator really favors. And so despite the fact that Pierre is always being described as just kind of an oaf and just uh, perpetually in the way, there's something innate about him that makes people want to like him. And this will be expanded upon further. But this is a good quality, actually, of Pierre, that he is not necessarily fighting what is happening he's kind of a more resigned to fate sort of guy um he assumes well if they're going to this back room to do something it's just everything has to be that way that's how it has to be what am i gonna do i think as you'll see kind of later in the war parts the people who really try to fight against history and try to make their own history uh they don't really succeed very well um, you can maybe succeed if you're if you've captured the sort of current of momentum and you're kind of like that right person for that moment, perhaps. Um, but of course, on a, on a much more minor scale, right? Anything Pierre is going to do, I'm not really sure that that's going to uh, change the outcome, right? And inevitably, he's rewarded actually for this, um, even though right he actually stands to lose the most out of anybody that we encounter in this first chapter. Um, Besides Andre's wife, maybe, um, who could lose her husband. But, you know, we're, we're talking about a massive fortune, baby. Uh, yeah, 40,000 souls, Moscow. so many, you know, of course, by 40,000 souls, they literally mean 40,000 people uh, who, are uh, yes. yeah, who are serfs on uh, <laughs> yes, Bezukov's property and some a massive amount of money. Yeah. So pay attention to how bad people want things to happen. That's a vague thing to say, but... Um, See whether they're rewarded for it or not. I think it's interesting to kind of track. Everyone in that funeral has, well, not funeral, last rites has something to do except for, like your point, Pierre, who is only doing things because he feels they should be done. Uh, mm -hmm. He just has a vague sense that, oh, people are kind of guiding him into places. Like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll sit here. Uh, thank you. I, I didn't know I needed that. Sure. Yeah. That was an interesting scene. I, I liked that scene, actually. When, um, he's, when he kind of gets a sense of what he should be doing because everyone's like, oh, please sit here. Oh, here's yeah. this back. And he normally would have been like, oh, I normally would have just avoided, I would have just sat somewhere else or would have just mm -hmm. picked it up myself. But because everyone seems to think they should be doing it, I guess I'll let them. Yeah, yeah. it's it's an interesting thing with funerals. I feel like if you're one of the people that's around the person who has just passed, like 
uh, you're almost not really there for yourself. You're there for the other people to sort of play this role in, I, I don't even know, facilitating some sort of general closure, um, allowing them to feel like they're useful in that situation. And I thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah, also very true to life. I've been a pallbearer at funerals that I didn't know I was going to be a pallbearer at until someone handed me a glove and said, okay, go pick up the coffin. So, Surprise. And you can't fight fate, Cameron. <laughs> Fortune will soon smile upon you. <laughs> but yeah, um, confusing is part one, but it's setting up a lot. It's got a lot to set up. Yes. And the last thing that I will generally touch on because i know a lot of people will be interested in this is i think a lot of people that will listen to the series that are really big dostoevsky fans very curious to hear how they read tolstoy i think dostoevsky is generally regarded as much more complex generally speaking tolstoy is noted i think for sort of simplicity um which if you're new to russian literature you might think oh how could that be true there's like a thousand characters in one. <laughs> um <laughs> But I think all in all, right, once you get past who is who, uh, the plot of what is happening appears to be very simple. But I think there is really something quite complex going on under the simplicity, which is just very different in style uh, and in effect. So I think that it's just something to note as, as we go through. What appears to be very simple on the surface, really, I think has a lot of kind of stuff underneath it and stuff that is just so intentionally connected to the rest of the book. Yeah. Things to pay attention to. Pay attention to it. Why not? What what do you got to lose? (laughs) Uh, Other than many hours of your life reading this book. Other than many of your hours of your life reading Tolstoy. (laughs) (laughs) Those aren't losses. Those are net gains. I can tell you uh, the net gain, if we want to go into some Jeremy Bentham utilitarianism here, Mm. net gain of joy in my life from reading Father Sergius and telling people about the Tolstoy getting uncomfortably horny definitely worth the time spent reading the story. <laughs> no, that's that's true. That's true. I don't like though having that knowledge now. <laughs> so that is fair. That is fair. Maybe it doesn't balance out the same way for you. No, no, that also never comes up in my life. So okay, well, <laughs> that's fair. Now, nobody ever wants to hear me talk about Father Sergius. <laughs> oh, no one wants to hear me talk about Father Sergius either. But that doesn't stop me. Let me tell you. <laughs> he simply can't be stopped (laughs) well before we totally wrap up this whole show cameron i gotta ask you on the scale from one to yeltsin how drunk are you as our sole representative now yes definitely well like i said this is a good amount of booze in here i'm not quite done with it but i'm close i'm gonna say a good three it is a lot of booze but it's also a lot of cream i think that really Mm. mm, kind of slows Mm. things down a little bit so too rich three just warm enough to talk about a complex family story. Oh, yeah. Well, many family oh, yeah. story. Oh, yeah. Families <laughs> don't stop. Yeah, what, what kind of rating should we have for you now that you're no longer, now that you're no longer particular? Like, on a scale mm. of, who's a notably sober author and or politician? Well, I'm going to cut out politician. There's none of those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it couldn't be. We'll have to workshop it. <laughs> All right, we'll come back with that one eventually. If you have any ideas or, you know, you got any questions about War and Peace, but mm-hmm. more importantly, if you have ideas for uh, Sober Scales, shoot us an email over at tipsytolstoy.com. I will read them and then I will respond to you and then we can have a nice chat. 
every once in a while that we get a nice email and it really does make our day. It does. It truly does. All right. Well, as, as per always, this is the part where I ask Matt what we're reading this next episode, but I guess you kind of know. Yep. Next episode is book one, part two of War and Peace. So, you know, if you're reading along with us, pick up a book on our affiliate links uh, on our website. Uh, maybe we'll have a link in the in the show notes if we remember to do that. I'm working on putting it together. We're getting a lot of questions on which one we're reading. Uh, I'm reading the Signet Classic. <laughs> I'm reading the Signet Classics, uh, which is a translation by Anne Dunigan. It's a little bit older, so it's a little bit harder to find. This was recommended to me by a professor whose opinion I trust. I, I think if you're going to read anyone, you know, just find one that the translation feels natural. It feels enjoyable. It feels funny. A lot of this should be funny. So if you're not finding it humorous, take a look at a different translation. But again, in our affiliate links, um, you can take a look. We'll have basically every copy that's available to buy. Pick whichever one you want. And I'm also going to have some secondary sources, a couple of good books that I think uh, are worthwhile to read on War and Peace. So if you want to get more into it, if you think, hey, like 1,300 pages isn't enough for me, I want a couple more books to read about War and Peace. I got you covered. If you have that much free time, please write us an email and let us know what it was like to achieve your life and how you got there, because we'd like to know. Yes. And if you have that much free time and you also have a lot of free money, uh, you should support us on Patreon. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, because podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So, uh, you know. If you want to join with our current patrons, take a look over at the patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. And before I cue the outro music, I've got to extend my sincerest thank you, as always, to all of our current patrons that we've got supporting the show. We've got Jeff, Madeline, Anne, Janice, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Irini, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious, Donor Dude, Joanne, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, Julie, Eli, Caitlin, Brett, Isaac, Austin, Zachary, Pakra, Maya, Amanda, Blake, Shannon, Elizabeth, Jacob, James, Ben, Khalil, and Natalie. We got a couple of you new patrons on there. We appreciate it very much. Again, if you want to get in on this War and Peace uh, book club that we got going on in our Discord, please take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. If you don't want to support us, but you still want to talk War and Peace, it's fine. You can still join our Discord, I guess. As always, the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.